We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Come and bring God's word to us. And I'd like to pray for you, Sean, if that's okay, just before you come and bring God's word to us. Those of you who don't know, this is Sean, because, you know, most people might have only seen Sean on Zoom. <laughs> so, because uh, jo- uh, they've joined us. When did you join us now? I'll tell you just now. Oh, you're going to tell us. Okay, good, fantastic. I'll pray for you and I'll go away. Um, yeah, Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, so much for Sean. Lord God, I thank you for uh, the word that you've put on his heart this morning. And we pray, Lord God, you just be with him as he brings it to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Catherine. On? Yes? Cool. Thank you. So good morning, church. Um, as Catherine said, my name is Sean, and myself and my family have been part of Hope Church for just a little over a year now. We moved to the UK in March last year, and through a period that was literally upside down for everyone, we felt completely at home within this community and this church, and for that we're enormously grateful and feel incredibly blessed. I've just realized that at six foot three, I need to just up this just a touch. Cool. There we go. Now, I have already said we a few times, so I suppose I need to introduce the we part, which is my wife, Lynn, and our children, Nicholas, who's almost 11, and Rebecca, who is seven. I don't get too many opportunities in a forum such as this to honor them, especially my wife who has simply been incredible through our family's transition over the last 18 months, and who, above else, adopted the position of head teacher and individual grade teacher for the greater part of over the last 18 months. I'm still in awe of that as well. Together with putting up my occasional whining as well about sitting in front of a computer for eight to 10 days, eight eight to 10 hours a day, and missing my normal work day, um, or what what I can recall thereof, Either way, they've all been amazing. The only negative part of this intro is that the last time I publicly declared my love and adoration for my wife, it included a week on on an island with great beaches and phenomenal weather. At least I've been able to deliver the island part this time around. Before I get too carried away, I'm going to open in prayer and then ask my wife to read today's psalm, which is number 33. It's going to be out of the NRV, so those who want to grab a Bible, Call out your smartphones or simply follow on the screen, please do so. So, Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that we can gather, Lord. I pray that you just open up our hearts and our minds to receive a message that you have given this morning, Lord. We love you and we pray for this all in your precious name. Amen. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host, by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. 
Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He forms the hearts of all who consider everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Thank you, my love. So, it's always good to start with a little context. When trying to decide on today's psalm, I had it on my heart that I needed to talk about God's faithfulness as it's something that in all honesty, we as a family have experienced firsthand through most of the last three to four years. Through a list of changes in our lives, including moving to another country, which is a story all on its own. Sorry. God has just shown us more favor and grace than I ever thought was possible. Even though there's an element of this psalm confirming his faithfulness, it had another lesson for me one which I didn't anticipate from the onset, but at the end had me asking the question, what exactly is God's plan? One of the commentaries I'd referenced categorized Psalms 31 to 33 collectively as what to sing on Sundays. They were ultimately written as a baseline for what worship looked like in David's tabernacle. Psalm 31 begins with an instruction to the choir master, who is ultimately the chief musician and who would coordinate worship. It's also a psalm of lament, asking God for help as his people are worn out, distressed, and afflicted. Psalm 32 then focuses on forgiveness, which Rihanna did such a great job of a couple weeks back. And then finally, Psalm 33 brings a close to the trio of psalms by God being praised and given thanks for who he is and what he had done. I can't help but think that this is a sequence that's all too familiar in the Bible. God's people sin and are afflicted and oppressed by their enemies. Worth noting that it's all their own doing. Once they realize that they've angered and disappointed God and need to be rescued, they ask for forgiveness and admit to chasing after other gods and doing what is evil in sight of the Lord. And they plead to be rescued. God duly forgives, and thereafter they can only but praise God for rescuing them and giving them victory over their adversaries and enemies. If there was ever a book to really get a true sense of this, it's the book of Judges, where the cycle is repeated and God demonstrates his mercy and his grace time after time, a number we're all too familiar with in the Bible, seven times in total. 
With this in mind, I see today's psalm like going to a fine restaurant where you'd have a three-course meal, a starter, a main course, and dessert. Your starter is verses 1 to 9 and describes, God's wor- describes worship and praising God and who he is. The main is verses 10 to 17 and talks of God's plans versus worldly plans. And lastly, dessert is verses 18 to 22, which ends with the message of hope and his steadfast love. So let's tuck in. Verses 1 to 3 describes what worship looks like and actually comes close to what we do on most Sunday mornings. We shout for joy, we praise and give thanks. And this is all done by an amazing worship team who do so skillfully. So we have the melody and a team that have set the scene and the platform for us. But the key verse that stands out for me here is to sing a new song. In King David's time, this would literally be a new song that was written and sung to praise God by those that were involved in battle on their way back home. Another way to view it, specifically in today's time, is singing a song that you're familiar with, but singing it with fresh revelation. I can't imagine this worship being too dissimilar back then to today's worship, other than evolved instruments, some sound amplification, and speakers. Sorry, guys. Praise and worship is a key part of church for us on a Sunday morning. As a starting point for the meeting, it settles us and prepares our hearts for what God is about to do. It sets the scene. It brings a sense of calm and gets us to focus on him and hopefully open our hearts and our minds to receive the message that's taught from his word, which, as verse 4 puts it, is right and true. This also allows us to recalibrate for the week ahead. Verses 4 to 9 then take us all the way back to the beginning, Genesis. Just in case we, didn't, we weren't aware of who we are worshipping, it's the creator of the world, the creator of the heavens and their starry host. He seized the earth. He commanded it and it stood firm. That's the way he created it, and it wasn't going to change no matter what. It further describes the majesty and reverence with which we need to take into account when worshipping. What an incredible picture that's presented in verse 7, with oceans being stored in jars. I couldn't help thinking of, thinking of going into a supermarket and buying something in a jar. And the first thing that came to mind, to me at least, is jam. Now, the text does indicate, indicate jars as in plural, so there would be a few, but in a few jars, and just entertain me for the, on this occasion, consider a specific brand of jam, and then consider that in an entire supermarket, these jars contain all the seas of the earth. A quick Google search, and for today's fun fact, for those who didn't know it, the percentage of the earth covered by water is 71%. That very quickly made me think of how massive the universe God created is and his might to create and store just the oceans in this case. What a way to take that last mouthful of the starter in expectation for what's in store for main course.
So the direction of the psalm really changes and confirms we're in the next course. As up till now, all the focus is on God and what he's created and what, he, and what he's done and what we need to do to praise him. It's also positive, to be quite honest, as it's focused on all that is good. The NIV translation that we've just read takes only three words into verse 10 to bring about the shift as the Lord foils the plans of the nations. The meat of the psalm genuinely speaks to who I am. Even if we go away on holiday, I've got to know exactly where we're having breakfast, lunch, supper, what activities we're doing, what time do we need to leave, what time have we got to be there, and so it goes on. If I've got a job at home, what tools do I need? Take all the measurements, no wastage, and I've got to keep those costs in check. Give me a spreadsheet and a project, and I'm there like a bear. Planning is good in order to make things predictable and to bring order to anything that would otherwise be chaotic, right? But what about the overall plans and the plans for our lives? The questions I found myself asking were, what are God's plans in general? What are his plans for me? What are his plans for my family, for Hope Church? And the list goes on. So what is God's ultimate plan? I won't go back into the creation story too much to make this too laborious. But undoubtedly, God had a plan when creating the world. And to the extent that he did it in a very specific order. Just imagine if he had created us before plants and trees or animals, as an example. And that plan was good until we decided to force God to revise his plan. After Genesis 3 verse 6, we man ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And sin was introduced into the world. Thus the question to now ask is how did that change God's plan? It undoubtedly is now to restore heaven on earth as he originally created it. Through each day of, cre of the creation story, it always ended with, it was good. And then he created us, and then it was very good. The second part is for him to eliminate sin completely, which ultimately caused the divide between us and God. And lastly, to restore our relationship with him, which he created us for. And hence at this in verse 11, where it says, the people he has chosen for his own inheritance. I then found myself asking the question whether my plans are the same as God's. I mean, what are the chances that the answer to that question was ever going to be yes? If you had to ask me a good few years ago what the plans for my own life looked like, they would have sounded a little something like this. I would have left school and I would have gone to study something I loved and something that I'd have a long, successful career in. And by, lo and by successful, I mean I'd make enough money to do whatever I wanted to. I then get married to the woman of my dreams. Tick. And then we'll travel for a few years before we settle down and buy a big house, preferably with a family car and a sports car on the side if possible. We'll then have a couple kids. One boy, one girl if preferable. Tick. We'll get a dog and then happily make our, make our way through to retirement. And then we'll get to travel the other parts of the world we didn't get to initially. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad plan, but the key thing to highlight is nowhere in that plan was God present at all. Considering I hadn't given my life to Jesus at that, at that time, I'm not completely hopeful 
that either my decision or my thought process at least would have been much different even if I had. In hindsight, my approach should have been, Lord God, with the talents and gifts that you've given me, how can I use those to fit into your plans and fulfill your will and purposes? By definition, when we plan something, we do so in expectation to get a specific answer or result. We do so with the aim that can make it as predictable as possible in the shortest time and with the least amount of effort. But realistically, so many things do take effort, no matter which way we look at it. Relationship takes effort, and ultimately, it's more a matter of how we focus that effort that actually counts. Considering this main course starts with the nation's plans to nothing, it really points to a worldly view and then brings in the people's involvement, and that's us, into the world and how we perceive and act on it. Verses 13 to 17 give this beautiful illustration of God sitting on his throne, gazing on all we do. He's formed our hearts, and then he waits to see what we do with them. There's a clear depiction of what the world sees as valuable versus that which God sees as valuable and important. In today's world, and clearly back in David's time as well, we're defined by our achievements and accomplishments, which ultimately defines our level of importance and relevance in society. The trap we need to be careful of, however, is being prideful of the knowledge and skills we have and the positions that we've acquired because of, of them such that we don't determine ourselves to be better than anyone else. How great would it be to have an introductory discussion and someone you've never ever met before and you start with, when did you come to know Jesus? Rather than, what do you do for a living? Ultimately, turning our hearts is what he's actually concerned most about. This is the measure and definition of who we are and will be in God's kingdom. And why would we pursue long extended careers and sacrifice much? I'd imagine it to be in the hope that we're either acknowledged by it and then defined by it, or we do so in the hope of finding a comfort in life because of the efforts that we've put in. And those hopes and comforts can be many things. Money, retirement, early retirement for some, possessions, investments, and the list goes on. Another term that could also be used to complement this may be security. Verses 16 to 17 in the psalm references physical securities that in today's modern world represents these things. It would definitely be irresponsible to just forget about aspects such as financial well-being and good stewardship. But the key message is not to be reliant on those, but on God's, but on God's provision and to be content with it. This is perfectly phrased in verse 17 as a vain hope, ultimately showing us that it wasn't a hope to start with. I'm not entirely convinced that God wants life for us to be comfortable, but, it is wanting, but he is wanting to see us be content with that to which he's called us to, and being secure in knowing that God has a very specific plan and purpose for each of us. This is where we can find the security that we so desperately need. And finally, the misconception is that it's all about us, right? There's a constant narrative in today's world that it is actually all about us. 
and what we can do and overcome all on our own steam. But it's all about relationship. Relationship in two ways. Firstly, mutual relationship with each other. And the focus has to be on the word mutual, as it's a two-way street where there needs to be effort and desire from both sides. The best example has to be marriage. And I say that as the depiction Jesus gives of him, of us, gives us of him and his church being the ultimate example. It's not meant to be on our own or from one side only. And if it is, it's bound to fail. The second is relationship with God. But in this case, it's a dependent relationship. We need him and we need his relationship. And that relationship is restored if we so choose. The way he's restored it already is that he's given us his son, Jesus. It's done. It's finished. He even went a step further and gave us a helper in the Holy Spirit who walks with us every day. He's already done his part and laid the platform for us to reciprocate. John 14, verse 16 to 17 confirms this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. All we need to do is accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior to live in this hope and assurance. Now that we've gotten through that full plate of food, I hope you've got just a little bit of space left over for dessert. Right, so dessert begins from verse 18, where the New King James Version highlights it best with, Behold, the psalmist has now delivered a message And the last part really needs our full attention. This is what we need to take away from the psalm. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who revere him, who accept him. As the God described in verses 6 to 9. And most importantly, the God in whom we need to place our full trust. That, in his steadfast love, he will deliver us from death. And in times of hardship and famine... He will care for and protect us. In this case, the word steadfast, I felt I needed to reaffirm the actual meaning and looked it up in the dictionary. And by dictionary, I mean Google. Steadfast, firmly fixed in place, immovable, not subject to change. It really strengthened my understanding of how consistent God's love for us actually is. Verses 20 to 22 close the psalm out with a sense of calm. We read through the psalm, ultimately starting with loud shouts of joy and melody, a description of who God is and what he's done in creating the world. The chaos of the world and nations and how he brings them to absolutely nothing. How God looks down seeing this chaos all play out with further imagery of a great army, a mighty warrior, a war horse, death, famine, and then our soul waits for the Lord. The classic term, the cherry on the top, has to come in at the end of dessert. And this cherry is a common thread 
to this entire passage, which is the word all. The word all is used nine times in this psalm, twice to describe all that God has done and created, and the other seven times it refers to us, the face of the earth, once everyone in his kingdom, and his grace is available to all. Throughout the psalm it references all the earth to fear the Lord, all the inhabitants of the earth to be in awe of him, and that the plans of his heart are for all generations. The crunch, however, is in verse 11, where only those who choose the Lord as their God are blessed, the ones whom God chooses as his inheritance. So what does God want from us, and how do we respond? God wants us to seek him and ask him, where do we fit within his plans? To help us, I've come up with the three A's. The first is we ask. Relationship and time with God is undoubtedly the first step. We can ask God what he wants from us and what the next step is and whether he's calling us to something. A good indication or marker to really be asking God this question is possibly when we're comfortable. The way he'll answer us may be in different ways too. However, what's key is that it'll require us to take that step of faith, which brings us to the next day, which is to act. We need to knock on the door and see if it's a, God, if it's a door that God is clearly wanting to open or firmly shut. I'm eternally grateful to a friend of mine who gave this advice to me coming on four years ago. At that stage, my approach was, I'll just sit back and I'll wait for God to move. Fortunately, I didn't go that route, as I firmly believe that if I'd continued with that approach, I'd still be waiting for his answer and his confirmation. And lastly, we adventure. Sometimes we make the wrong decisions, and they end up being doors that get closed on us. But there's always a lesson, and most importantly, there's always going to be testimony. Imagine sharing with someone all that God has done in your life and you explained your story as, well, God spoke to me and I listened and that's pretty much it. He's going to give us a story with ups and downs, but ultimately to show us that without his involvement, it's not going to be worth telling to anyone. To illustrate this, we recently spent a week at the seaside and on one of the days we headed to a beach that wasn't very easily accessible. We confirmed with the owner of the local cafe that it was just a brief walk. Over the bridge, down the path on the right-hand side, no problem at all. We got to the point on the other side of that bridge, and the path forked, and the route that was supposed to be along the water's edge had a massive tree which obscured the whole view. And turning right towards the water looked to be full of rocks and not easy at all. The path to the left, however, seemed to be a much safer bet. Well, so it seemed. Definitely longer. But it had led us past a small waterfall, through a forest, and even though there were a few more steps, it was awesome. On the way back, we actually saw that the path along the water's edge was much easier, but that the, but that the tree obscured, obscured the view. It very quickly changed our perception. Moral of the story is that the adventure was better and took more effort. Even though we ended at the same destination, 
there was a story to share at the end of it. If anything, I'd love to leave you with this encouragement this morning. Firstly, that God loves, cares, and has a plan for every single, per- every single one of us. And he wants to use us if we're willing. Indeed, we're justified and saved by the blood of Jesus if we call upon his name. But I do believe that God always has more for us. If you're not dead, then God's not done. He's made us individually unique for his purposes. So there's also a unique plan for every single one of us. The plan may not be to our liking, but it's a, it's a plan that God has only the best intentions for us, for his kingdom and for his glory. He wants us to have impact, impact as he perceives it and not as the world perceives it. He's oh so, so faithful. And what he plans and says will come to pass. His plans stand firm and there is absolutely nothing that will ever come between God and his plans. I've been very encouraged by a song from Elevation Worship recently called See a Victory, which has the following words. There's power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war he wages, he will win. I'm not backing down from any giants because I know how this story ends. On that note, if I can ask the total membership of two of the worship team to please come up. And before I close in prayer, I'd love to read a small extract from a book I recently read called Our Deepest Desires by Gregory Gansel, which I'd highly recommend. He summarized so clearly and beautiful all that I was trying to share with you this morning, so much so that it just wouldn't seem right to paraphrase it. In the Christian story, we matter independently of our achievements. Our lives are meaningful simply because God has reason for making us. We stand in relation to the fundamental meaning maker of the universe. The point of our lives is grounded in our relationship with God and is real whether we recognize it or not. We have been made and placed in this world for God's purposes. Although our accomplishments are fragile, our meaning is secure. Heavenly Father, just thank you, Lord, that we could hear from your word this morning. Pray, Lord, that as we go back into a time of worship, that we can lift our hands, we can lift our hearts, we can lift our eyes to you, Lord, and give you all the praise and recognition that you so deserve, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that you've just, you've called every single one of us to a very specific plan and purpose, Father, and that you only have the best intentions for us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we can just draw closer to you, that we can ask you, we can spend time with you, Father, and that you can lay these plans out more so as we spend that time with you, Lord. Pray that you can just give us that path, Lord, and give us the reassurance and the confidence that you do have that plan, Lord, and that we can place that, we can place our trust in you completely, Lord. We love you, Father, and we just pray for this all in your precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.